want you to turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, please. Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. I want to speak to you today on true greatness. And we are beginning to read in Mark 9, from verse 33. And he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, what was it that they disputed among themselves by the way? He asks them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receives me. Whosoever shall receive me receives not me, but him that sent me. John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he follows not us. And we forbid him, because he follows not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me, for he that is not against us is on our part, or on our side. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. We end our reading there at verse 42. Let's pray together for just a moment. Father, we thank you for the promise of the Lord Jesus that where two are gathered together unto him, to his name, he will be in the midst. And we pray that it will be found in all of our hearts the desire to meet with Christ now. We thank you for these sacred, inspired, infallible words that tell us of his life, his teaching, his great acts. We pray, Lord, that this event that we have just borne record to from Mark's gospel will be used in a mighty way to, to teach us now what true greatness is. Lord, give me the help I need and all of us together as we seek to understand your word and be receptive to the change that you wish to make in all of our lives. By the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, I'm sure most of you are aware of the fact that all the gospel writers have different emphases. And Mark's emphasis is on the servanthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly the suffering servant. And the key verse, perhaps, in the whole book is found in the next chapter to ours this morning, chapter 10 and verse 45, and you'll be familiar with it. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. 
You may not be aware that the background to that statement in Mark 10.45 is very similar to the context that we find ourselves in in Mark chapter 9, because James and John had come to the Lord Jesus and asked that they would sit either side of the Lord Jesus when his earthly kingdom came upon the earth. And you can read all about that verse 42 of chapter 10 to 45. But the Lord was trying to emphasize to them that God's glory comes to us through service. Indeed, sacrifice. Put the two things together. Sacrificial service. But they keep failing to get the lesson. And that's what this whole gospel really is about. The suffering servant who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Mark uh, concentrates more on the works of the Lord Jesus than the words of the Lord Jesus. More miracles in Mark in comparison to the other Gospels. And what the writer wants us to see is the service of the Lord Jesus that was marked with such suffering that was taking him to the cross. Now, if you know anything about Mark's Gospel, you will surely know that not only does it depict suffering service, but it's all leading us to the cross. And he is the one gospel writer that spends more time in the last week of the Lord Jesus than the others. It's the gospel of the cross. And the message is, we must suffer if we would reign with Christ and share the glory of Christ. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ had to suffer to save our souls from sin and hell. He must suffer to save and he repeats it over again and again. If you look at chapter 9, verse 30, 31, chapter 9, 31, he tells them again, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Verse 32, but they understood not the saying and were afraid to ask him. Verse 12 of chapter 9, he tells them again that he is going to the cross. Chapter 8 and verse 31, he talks about the exact same thing. Chapter 10, verse 33 to 34, he repeats it. But what we need to remember is that this gospel was written after the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose again, and ascended to heaven. So there's a message in this gospel for Christians who it was written to. We believe that specifically it was written to Christians in Rome. Incidentally, who were suffering or just about to suffer for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a message this would be. You're going to have to suffer. Your Savior suffered to serve you. And if you are to be the servants of the servant of the Lord, you're going to have to suffer as well. His servants must go the same Calvary road as their master. The way to glory is suffering. Now, one great illustration of this that the Lord gives us in his teaching is found in chapter 8, if you would turn back to it with me. And again, we see the confusion of the disciples. The Lord Jesus is talking about his cross again. And in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he, he spoke that saying openly, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Peter was confused about this 
business about a cross. It, it didn't fit in with his idea of what a Messiah should be. Surely the Messiah should deliver them from the, the, the Roman uh, imperial power and, and bring the millennial kingdom to earth there and then. It, it just didn't fit in with his conception. But can I say to you this morning that this was more than a theological problem that Peter had. It's a practical problem. You've got to remember that Peter, his brother Andrew, and all the disciples had left everything to follow Christ. Now, that meant that whatever happened to their master would happen to them. That's where the cross becomes personal. It was Campbell Morgan, the great preacher, who said, the man who loves Jesus but shuns God's method is a stumbling block to him. That's profound. The man or woman who loves Jesus but doesn't accept God's method is a stumbling block to God. And we see it in Peter here. The Lord had to rebuke him and say, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not desiring the things that are of God but of men. And God's method for Christ was the cross. But do you know that God's method for you is a cross? They were confused, and I imagine a lot of people, disciples of the Lord Jesus today, are confused. They don't realize it's a cost to being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. So the Lord had to talk to the disciples about their cross, our cross. And in verse 34 of chapter 8, the 38, we see that, and I'll take time to read it all, uh, just to, to say, chapter 8, verse 34, that the Lord Jesus tells us what discipleship is. The second half, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Three conditions for true discipleship. Not for becoming a Christian now. That's by faith alone. But to become a disciple, a true follower, an apprentice of Jesus Christ, you've got to surrender, deny yourself. You've got to sacrifice, take up the cross. And you've got to follow him, not submission, submit to his will and obey. That's discipleship. And it's a matter of profit or losses. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look down at verse 35, whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the Gospels shall save it. It's a question of whether you're going to waste your life down here on earth on yourself. As a Christian, you can do that, you know. Or whether you'll invest your life for Christ. And maybe people around you will think you're wasting your life down here, not living it up and enjoying it all, but you'll find life in the reward that you will get in the glory of heaven. And so the Lord, in chapter 9, takes the disciples to show them the glory of the cross. Now, we haven't got time to read chapter 9, verse 1 to 10, but it's all about the transfiguration. And the Lord Jesus took Peter, James, and John up the mount, and he revealed his glory to them. He was transfigured in their presence. Now, what was all that about? Well, connect them all together. He's telling them, I've got to go to the cross. They don't get it. Then he says, you've got a cross and you've got to embrace it if you're going to follow me. And then he displays the glory of the cross. And the message is clear. First, Christ is teaching. 
First the suffering, then the glory. First the cross, then the crown. That's God's order. Now Satan offers you and offered the Lord Jesus Christ glory without suffering. Remember the temptation in Matthew 4. Took him to a high place and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he offered those kingdoms to the Lord if he just bowed down and worship. The devil offers glory without suffering, but it ends up to be suffering without any glory. The only true glory, the only true greatness comes by the way of the cross. And if we, you and I, want true greatness in our lives, they must be marked by service and suffering, sacrifice. We must be the suffering, sacrificial servants of the suffering, sacrificial servant. Now, the disciples were dull to hear this message, and uh, they're still hankering after their own glory. After hearing all that, uh, we still haven't reached where we are now. But as they're coming down the Mount of Transfiguration, after seeing that the glory comes after the cross, there's a demon-possessed boy. And the disciples, the rest of them, that weren't taken up to the Mount, were powerless to deliver this boy from the demon. Their prayer lives were deficient. And the Lord tells them this kind, chapter 9, verse 29, only is cast out by prayer and fasting. But there's the lesson again. If you want to serve the Lord, there has to be sacrifice, prayer, and fasting, you've got to sacrifice time and food. It's the way of the cross. And then in verse 31, the Lord again, as we've read it already, teaches them about the cross. And again, they don't get it. Don't get it. Don't understand it. Now let's take up where we, we read verse 33. They arrive, journeying from the bottom of that mountain of transfiguration to a place called Capernaum. And verse 34, the Lord, who is all-knowing, of course, he asks them what they were talking about, what they were arguing about among themselves as they traveled along the road. And in verse 34, we see that they're embarrassed, they're silenced, dumbfounded, because they were disputing, arguing, who would be the greatest? Now, I don't know what happened. We could surmise that the transfiguration experience which, of course, was pointing to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth when he would set up his kingdom and glory, perhaps they thought, it's all going to happen now. <laughs> and we've got to get in our pecking order and decide who's going to be the top dogs among the disciples. Maybe it was Peter, James, and John who had been taken by the Lord and chosen to go up the mount who thought that they were in the, in the first, second, and third place in the running stakes. Perhaps it was the others who were left behind in jealousy that they weren't taken up to see it. They started to smart about it. I don't know. But I know this much. That in all of us, preacher included, there is a drive, a sinful, Adamic, old-natured drive for greatness that is not of God. I hope you know what I'm talking about. It's a dominating force, not only in individuals, but in all of humanity. And I think it hasn't helped that our children are taught Darwinism from as early as possible, which is 
practically survival of the fittest in nature, and therefore they go out into this big wild world believing it's dog-eat-dog, and the strongest people who walk over the weakest will be the ones who will prevail. Now, God did, of course, as we know from the book of Genesis, the creation account, He intended greatness for mankind. Everything that He made was good. But human greatness, as God ordained it, was not to be found in self-achievement, self-aggrandizement. But our greatness as human beings made in the image of God was to be in reflecting the greatness and the glory of our Maker. Now, of course, Satan was created for that same purpose as all creation was. He was, we believe, an angelic being whose, whose chief end it was to glorify God and reflect God's glory in the very throne room of heaven. But what happened? He desired glory for himself. And he said, I will ascend. I will be like God. It was C.S. Lewis who said that pride is the sin that made the devil the devil. It's worth thinking about, isn't it? And of course, Satan infected the first man, Adam, with this disease. You will be as gods, he told them. You will be the determinants of your own destiny. Now, the lesson that we have here from our Lord Jesus Christ is you can't find true satisfaction or greatness apart from God. Jeremiah was told, Seekest thou great things for thyself, seek them not. But the tragedy is, and let's be honest, if somebody's good at something, there's a great temptation to feel that we're great. That being excellent equates greatness. And you can become intoxicated by, uh, with a sense of your own importance. And of course, not everybody's great at things. And, and the alternative of that is people who feel that they're not great and get dejected and even despair and depressed of life itself because they don't feel great at all or great at anything. And all of that business is because people, whether they think they're great or think they're not great, don't understand what true greatness is in the sight of God. Now, of course, the disciples had the former problem. <laughs> they thought they all were great. And all were worthy to be top dog in the pecking order. But the heartbreaking thing about this whole story is it is at the very moment the Lord Jesus is telling them of his impending death, of his service for them and the world, his sacrifice at the cross. It's at that moment that they're arguing among themselves who is esteemed greatest. They should have been focusing on the crucified Christ but they're focusing on themselves. And what is the point? They never, get it now, they never understood the message of the cross. Three and a half years almost now, they're with him. He's telling them about it. And I have to say to you, 
that disciples of Jesus Christ today still do not understand the true message of the cross. There was a cross for Christ, but there's one for you. It was Carl Henry who said, how can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? He can't. That's why the old hymn writer said, thus would I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appear. And as we look at this this morning, in the time that we have, let us all say, Lord, help me to bend that stiff-necked eye. Teach me to bow my head and die, beholding him on Calvary who bowed his head for me. Let's look at this. In verse 35, we have a principle that the Lord Jesus taught them. Look at it. He sat down, which incidentally was assuming the posture of a rabbi. He's going to teach them something very important. And he said, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. What a radical statement. It was countercultural, Because the, the Jewish society in which our Lord Jesus was operating... Rank and procedure were a cultural preoccupation. Who was, had the chiefest seat at the feasts? Who sat in the best seats in the, the, the synagogue? Today it's the same. You ever notice that maybe you're introduced to someone and after they find out what your name is, usually the next question that comes along is, what do you do? What do you do? Now, it's become second nature for us to to start to reason in our mind, well, if that person does that, well, then we establish their worth according to what they do. And if you're a businessman or you own a company, your worth in other people's eyes is often seen by how many people you have working for you, isn't it? Many of a staff or many outlets. The Lord Jesus is turning that all on its head. He turned it on its head for their values in their day and for ours in our day. And he's saying, it's not how many servants you have, it's how many people you serve. Greatness in the kingdom of God is found in how you serve your superiors and your inferiors. Well, it's easy to serve the boss if you're going to get sacked. But what about people that society would esteem as inferior to you? See, it's totally different in God's kingdom. In fact, many years ago when a religious group began, a Christian group, and I believe they, they began largely on biblical principles that were revolutionary and would have brought great blessing if they continued along the lines that they had begun, some have. But there was this little story told of how they would go to Sunday worship and there was a member of the aristocracy who was a member of that particular congregation. And he had been taken in, in, in a coach, a horse, and a horse-drawn coach to, to the meeting of worship. And then he would get out of the coach and the coach driver would get down and he would open the door for him and let him into the worship gathering. And then when they went into that place, believe it or not, the coach driver was one of the elders and the member of the aristocracy was just a member. 
Now, that doesn't mean that the member of the aristocracy was less important. Elders are no more important in God's eyes. They have a greater responsibility. They're no more important. But what it didn't mean was the value system of the world was not the same as God's. And that's why we shouldn't put people in responsible positions in the church of Jesus Christ because they're a bank manager or they're a lawyer or they're some clever clocks or they've got money. It's got nothing to do with it. God's values, as we can see through the Lord Jesus' teaching here, is different. Greatness is not in prominence, but actually in obscurity. Not in pushing yourself forward into the limelight, but stepping back into the shadow and hiding. Not lording it over other people, but being a servant. Voluntarily taking the lowest place of service and living for other people instead of yourself. Now, that is radical. It's the way of the cross. Wouldst thou be great, then lowly serve. Wouldst thou go up, go down, but go as low as e'er you will. The highest has gone lower still. Think about it. What am I talking about? A brilliant illustration of this is the night before our Lord Jesus he went to the cross and died. He came to the upper room with his disciples. And again, we find them doing what? They're busy arguing who's the greatest among them. So much so that no one would condescend to be the servant and wash everybody's feet. So the Lord removes his outer garment and then his tunic. Next, he takes a towel and he wraps it around himself. Now, this is the incarnate Son of God. And slowly, one by one, he goes round each of those disciples and washes their feet. Then hear what he says in John 13. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he who sent him. It's the message of the cross. The way to glory, the way to the crown, is through the cross and through the shame, the suffering, the agony. Now turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, please, because we see this again. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul is reflecting now the same teaching. Philippians 2, 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath also highly exalted him. He went so far down, God raised him up. But he had to go down. And you know, Peter, you don't need to turn to it. Remember, he was in the upper room. He was the one objected to the Lord and said, you're not going to wash my feet. 
he later exhorting Christians to humble themselves before each other says, Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to the older. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. And we believe he's thinking of the Lord clothing himself with the towel. This is what he says. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I wonder, did you ever graduate in understanding the cross of Christ? Did they? Do you know when they graduated? I'd ask you to guess. It wasn't until the Savior died, rose again, ascended to heaven, and because He was glorified, the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. It wasn't until they were filled with the Holy Spirit that they truly understood the message of the cross what it meant for them, at least. That's why they were fearless on the day of Pentecost. That's why they turned the world, the known world, upside down for Christ. You see, it's not natural to behave like this. Don't think it is, to put others first. It's something supernatural. And you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit of Christ and the living God, if you're going to do it too. These disciples would eventually be the apostles that became the foundation of the church, and it would be built on them uh, under Christ, of course. But if it was to survive, they had to learn that they were not going to be served. They were not going to lord it. But they would need to be servants of the lowest kind. Paul talked about how they were despised, the basest of things. They were seen as the scum of the earth. And I tell you something. That's still what we need in the church of Jesus Christ today. We need people, particularly in leadership positions, who don't want to be served, but serve. Not worried about what car they're driving, many bedrooms their house has, but they're worried about serving the lowliest of people and the lost. We've got to get back to this. We've got to all, all of us, look for opportunities to serve the other. For he humbled himself to the manger and even to Calvary's tree. But I am so proud and unwilling his humble disciple to be. Is that the case? Let me give you two illustrations that the Lord gives us in his word of this. And I'm almost finished. There's a positive and a negative. There's one given to us by the Lord himself, and the other is given to us by the apostle John and the rest of the disciples. The first is found in verse, back to Mark 9, verse 36 and 37. He took a child, set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him in his arms and embraced him, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one such children in my name receives me, and whosoever shall receive me receives not me, but him that sent me. Now, this might have been Peter's house in Capernaum, may well even have been Peter's own child. But to really understand the impact of what the Lord was doing here, it was an illustration. We've got to realize that in the Aramaic language, New Testament's written in Greek, Old Testament's written in Hebrew, but the Lord Jesus did not speak in either of those languages. He spoke in Aramaic. It was connected to Hebrew in a way, but 
it was a different language. Now, in the Aramaic language, the word child and the word servant are the same word. So what the Lord is doing here, he's connecting these two ideas, and he's saying, just as I've received this lowliest of, of children, embrace them into my arms, we are to embrace the lowliest servants of God and Christ. Now, many people even today, especially today, think greatness would be holding a reception for a monarch or a celebrity. You know, these wee women, thousands of states in England, all of a sudden get a letter that the Queen's going to come and have a cup of tea with, with them. You've seen it happen on the news. It's wonderful, isn't it? That's greatness. But in, in Christ's eyes, it is to receive the lowliest of servants, not the greatest of dignitaries. And both of these illustrations that we have in our passage show that true greatness, and I want you to think about this, we're not going to go into it, has got to do not with giving, but receiving. That's very interesting. So great was this greatness that Christ is talking about that if we entertain the lowliest of human beings and the lowliest servants of Christ, we actually end up entertaining Christ himself and more, the one who sent him, God the Father. That's what he said. Look at it. The end of verse 37, whosoever shall receive the lowliest receives me, and not just me, but him who sent me. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, what it means is simply this. Every child of God in God's family possesses the Holy Spirit residing within them. And that means that Christ's presence is in us and with us. The presence of God the Father is in us and with us in a certain way. And the presence of the Holy Spirit is with us. So when we embrace another child of God, the lowliest servants of Christ, what are we doing? We're embracing God and Christ in them. Whatever accomplishments they may have, influence or fame. And of course, the Apostle James in his epistle warned the Christians there of neglecting humble and ordinary people and bringing the, the fancy wealthy businessman up to the front seat and leaving the poor beggars at the back. And they're all children of Christ and they're all equal. Don't do that, he says. Because they have the presence of God in them as much as the rich man. What he's really saying is acceptance of all God's people opens us up to the presence of Christ. Now, please think about that. The more you embrace other children of God, genuine God's people, the more you do that and have a heart of love and grace and serve the lowliest of them, the more of Christ you will experience. We all want that, don't we? More of Christ. We should. That's one way of getting it. And what greater honor could there be to hold a reception for God? But how many of us see that in the opportunity of serving the lowest and meanest of people? Let me give you a quick illustration. I remember visiting sick folk a lot. And sometimes it wears you down. There was one day I was walking down a corridor in a hospital, going to a ward, and I could have seen it far enough, to be quite honest with you as I was walking down that ward, I felt the Lord saying, not in an audible voice, but in my heart, 
you're not visiting so-and-so, you're visiting me. Is that what he said? And as much as you've done it unto the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me. It revolutionizes service, doesn't it? But let me show you the other illustration for a moment, please. Verse 38 and 41. John, after seeing this illustration and getting the point, by the way, he says, Lord, look at verse 38. Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he doesn't follow us. And we forbid him because he doesn't follow us. Now, if Peter had said that, I would have taken a different connotation out of it. But I was asking myself during the week, why was it John? John doesn't usually pipe up like this, sure he doesn't. But John is a deep thinker. And John is realizing the illustration of the child that he's just seen. They had done something contrary to that in their actions toward this man who was casting out demons in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he was really inferring was they would not receive this man. They would not accept this man because he wasn't one of the twelve. The Lord Jesus Christ said, if he's not against me, he is for me. If he's doing this in my name, he's one of mine, and you must receive him. You must not forbid him. Now, surely you can see how this applies to the evangelical church today. I hope I'm not being overdramatic in saying that I believe that among us, and I speak of the church of Jesus Christ worldwide, jealousy is a great problem. Resentment, pride, and evangelicalism in general is at epidemic proportions because we have it all in our heart as individuals. I have enough to sink a fleet. And when you put that all together, a personal pride, professional pride, and you project it into the church, a denominational pride, doctrinal pride, you have people who say, believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think as I think, eat as I eat, drink what I drink, look as I look, do as I do, then, only then, I'll have fellowship with you. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying this morning. I, of all people, believe that doctrine is of supreme importance. It is. But note that this man wasn't teaching false doctrine. And this man wasn't living an immoral life. This wasn't a question of separating from the world or, or doctrinal error. This was blatant sectarianism. They just wouldn't accept this man because he wasn't one of their number. And the Lord nails it. It's wrong. Never compromise on the light God has given you. Never throw doctrine out the window to all be one in, in some kind of pseudo-Christian unity. That's false ecumenism. And it's not of God. But let me say this. Never allow your doctrinal position cause you to look down your nose at another child of God. Never. Christ won't allow it. It's challenging to me, I can tell you. And I'm sure it is to you. Even the least esteemed 
We are to embrace them. doesn't mean we have to agree with everything that they say or do. And we have to say and do it. No, no. But if they're truly born again, look at the, the criteria in verse 41. If you, you do this to one who belongs to me, belongs to me. We need to get back to that. There's a church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation who said, we have need of nothing. Remember? We have need of nothing. Pride. Where was Jesus Christ? Outside the door. Couldn't get in. It's better to embrace even those who reject us. Warren Wearsby said, it never ceases to amaze me how God blesses those I don't agree with. See, it's not a question in God's eyes of whether you belong to this group, that group, or the other group whether you follow one, one, one person's tradition or another, it's whether you belong to Christ. Now, all those other things aren't unimportant, but they're not the most important. The ironic thing is, these disciples of Christ forbid this man to do something that they couldn't do themselves. Isn't that right? They couldn't cast the demon out of the young boy. This man was doing it. Was it jealousy? You know what can happen? And I think it's happening sometimes in our province, across our world. Those that have the truth and haven't used it with the responsibility that they should have, God is moving away from them and blessing some people that don't have as much truth. God can do that, you know. And hopefully he'll lead them on to the truth. I'm not talking about salvation here. I'm talking about other issues that are important. So often we can be proud, become critical of other Christians, become sectarian, denominational to the point that God can bypass. I haven't got time to go into all this. My time's well up. But this happened in the Old Testament. Joshua came to Moses. There are two men prophesying in the camp. Shut them up. Moses said, I would to God that every man was prophesying for God. Paul said, I rejoice if Christ is preached even by people at times who aren't preaching him for the right motive. John the Baptist's disciples came to him and said, there are people leaving you and going to listen to, to Jesus Christ. And he said, I'm only the best man. He's the bridegroom. I must decrease. He must increase. It's all about him has to be. I don't care what church you belong to, just as long as for Calvary you stand, if your sins have been washed in the fountain, you're my brother, so give me your hand. That's the way it should be. It should be. But it's not sure it's not. Well, I've finished. Other things I could say to you. Just to say this, individually and collectively, Pride is our greatest enemy, and humility is our greatest friend. Keswick speaker once said, there's nothing God cannot do if we keep our hands off the glory. How can I have humility, you say? That's not the right question to be asking. It's where can I have humility? There is a place, and it is the foot of the cross. The great hymn writer said, God forbid... Forbid it, Lord, that I should glory, save in the cross of Christ my God. 
That's where true greatness is found, at the foot of the cross, serving and sacrificing. The modern hymn writer put it like this, so let us learn how to serve each other's needs to prefer, for it is Christ we're serving. Who are you going to give a cold cup of water to today? In Jesus' name. Don't need to cast out demons. Just a cold cup of water. And that will be your first step on the journey to greatness and to glory. God bless his word to every heart.